Okay, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. My name is um, Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. Wonderful to see all your faces. So, so far, we've gone over the medical diagnosis of the allergy of the body, obsession of the mind, and then Terry gave us a description of what does that diagnosis look like in a human being. So the next chapter is there is a solution. And a big part for me of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. So I have to fully concede to my innermost self that I am a compulsive overeater, and part of that is understanding what it means to not be a compulsive overeater. So we're in the chapter, There's a Solution, that starts on page 17, um, but I'm actually going to start on page 20. If you go to page 20, um, the third paragraph down talks about different questions that not I would ask another compulsive overeater. These are questions that non-compulsive overeaters ask us. You know, Maria had mentioned that, that frothy emotional appeal. These are the people that care about us, our family members, our doctors, our friends, and they want us to be okay, but they're asking us questions that make no sense whatsoever if you're a real compulsive overeater. So it says, how many times have people said to us, I can take it or leave it alone, why can't he? Why don't you eat like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer or wine, lay off the hard stuff? Those are the people that give you those brilliant ideas like why don't you just cut the piece of cake in half and stick some away for tomorrow? You know, why don't you just eat the uh, sugar-free, flour-free, Weight Watchers, you know, count your points kind of thing. Because it works for them. But it doesn't work for me. You know, it talks here um, about, uh, she's such a sweet girl, I should think he would stop for her sake. I mean, I remember in high school specifically, I know, Kim, I know you want to go to the prom. If you just take off a little bit of weight, someone will ask you to the prom. But whether you were threatening me or rewarding me, I didn't know how to stop. You know, it says the last one, the doctor told him if he ever drank again, it would kill him, but there he is, all lit up again. You know, one of my best friends is a, is a doctor, and I remember her calling me one time, and she was so frustrated because she had a patient that was like 400 and something pounds, diabetic, was having some toes removed the next day from her diabetes, and she went to visit her the night before in the hospital room, and the girl was sitting there eating cheesecake with her family. And she's like, what the hell is she doing? But in my alcoholic brain, I thought, well, she's losing her toes anyways. Why does it matter if she has cheesecake the night before? Like, that makes no sense unless the people who are laughing, it makes sense to you. You know, I mean, that's, that's how my brain works. So it says, these are commonplace observations on drinking, which we hear all the time. Back of them is the world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. So sometimes, like I said, it helps me to think of some, something I don't have a problem with. So for example, I don't have a problem with shopping. So I'm just going to suggest find something you don't have a problem with. And everybody in this area loves Costco. People are crazy about Costco. And I often hear people at work talking about the fact they can't control themselves when they go to Costco. They spend way too much money at Costco. And since I don't have a problem with spending, my advice to them would be, well, why don't you just write a list of everything that you're going to buy and then just don't buy anything off that list? Or if that doesn't work for you, why don't you set a dollar limit? You know, say you're not going to spend more than $100 any time you go to Costco. Or if that's even a problem for you, maybe why don't you just go to Costco every other month and that way you're not going to be tempted. And, I, and that makes total sense to me because, see, I don't have a problem with shopping. But if I flip that script, what have people told me? Kim, why don't you just write your food down? And then just don't, write, don't eat anything that you, didn't, you don't write down. Or you know, that, that program that counts points, 
why don't you just consider how many points you're going to have for the day and then just don't go over that point amount? Or if you really, really have a problem with pizza, why don't you just go to the pizza joint every other month? And I look at them like they're crazy because I can't do that as a real compulsive overeater. So I just invite you to do the same thing. So then they go over, there are these different compulsive overeaters. I mean, I think the statistics today are that, you know, 60% of Americans are overweight or obese. I don't believe 60% of Americans are compulsive overeaters. You know, with you, if you sit in front of a computer all day and eat fast food and don't exercise, you're going to get fat. It does not mean, just because you compulsively overeat doesn't mean you're a compulsive overeater. And Maria kind of hit on that with the doctor's opinion. So they talk about these three type of eaters. On the bottom of page 20, moderate drinkers have little trouble giving up in their liquor entirely. If they have a good reason for it, they take it or leave it alone. You know, my father's the kind of guy that when he goes on vacation, he weighs himself the day before he goes on vacation. He believes a big part of vacation is indulging in the local cuisine. And my dad can put on 10 pounds in 10 days easily. But what happens is he comes back, he sees how much weight he's gained, he moderates his food until he gets back to his normal weight, and then he goes back. Why? Because if it's there, he can, he'll take it, and it's very easy for him to leave it alone. Is that my experience with my binge foods? Absolutely not. Then we have the heavy eater. The heavy eater, the hard drinker, is someone who um, maybe even is one of our binge buddies. Maybe they go to the all-you-can-eat buffet with us. But they get diagnosed with diabetes, and they get scared, and they totally change the way they're going to eat. You know, I have one of my best friends, actually the doctor friend, um, she went through a really horrific divorce. And the way that she got through that divorce is she ate her way. She had four young kids. She put those kids to bed, and she would binge till she went to sleep. But I know her. I knew she wasn't a compulsive overeater. She was able to use the food as ease and comfort. And once that divorce settled down, once she accepted her husband was gone, once she realized that she could support these kids, whether she got um, child support or not, she bought a PX90 video and started shopping at Whole Foods, and she's fine. <laughs> she's not the compulsive overeater that I am. I'm the real alcoholic, the one who that, that at some stage in my drinking career, I begin to lose all control of my liquor consumption once I start to eat. Now, what I can do in these rooms is I try to figure out the exact moment that I, that I, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I was, I was born this way, or maybe I developed this way, or maybe I can figure out that I was 17, that light switch went off. Who cares? The question is where I am now. And the reason I'm so convinced of this personally is because I am the moderate drinker when it comes to drugs. I have to tell you, I drank, I smoked pot in college, but you know what? When I got a little scared about maybe getting, you know, caught because it's illegal, I stopped. I had an ankle injury. I was put on Oxycontin, Morphine, and Percocet. I got to tell you, I was, I was grateful when I got off that stuff because I didn't like the way it made me feel. I'm not, a, I'm not a drug addict. When it comes to alcohol, I never had a drink until I went to college. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. And then one day, if you guys remember the American Cowboy Company in Cherry Hill, I was there with a friend, and she, my friend was more drunk than me, and I said, you know what? I'm going to drive you home. I'm going to be a good friend. And I, me and her, I drove her the wrong, we went the wrong way on Route 130, and I almost killed us both. I never drank again. That was a sufficient reason. Now, if I had been caught by the cops that night, I'm sure they would have sentenced me to AA. And just the way Terry was talking about some stuff, if I had gone into a contemporary AA meeting and they told me to put the plug in the jug, don't drink, go to meetings, I would have been able to do that because I don't need the steps when it comes to my drinking. Even though my consequences, I can probably tell a decent AA story. So why is that different? So let's, go, let's, 
let's well, actually we'll go one more thing before we go to the magical page 24. If we go to page 23. It says these observations. So the observations are the allergy. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. And the big book is going to kind of switch away now from the allergy, and we're going to start really concentrating on that mental obsession. Because you see, if I had a one-fold illness, if my powerlessness was only in the allergy, then rehabs would kick out 100% recovery because they separate you from your substance, whether it's alcohol, food, drugs, sex, whatever that is. And they can sit you down and have a rational conversation and say, look at your consequences. That happens every time that you pick up. Don't do that. Nancy Reagan would have helped us all in the 80s with, <laughs> with you know, just don't, just don't drink. Scared straight would have worked. So where is my insanity? Where is my real powerlessness? My real powerlessness is when I'm sober, when I'm not having that allergic reaction, when I'm having no physical craving. Why do I decide to pick up? So I think of it this way. Let's say I have a very severe reaction to poison ivy, but I love to hike, love to hike. So what I do is I take protective gear and make sure all my, my body parts are covered. I know what poison ivy looks like. And I can go out on the trail, and I can hear the birds singing, and I see the sunshine, and I can enjoy everything, and I just avoid the areas that have the poison ivy in it. Does it matter that I'm allergic to poison ivy? No. But what if I have all my protective gear on, and I'm enjoying the outdoors, and all of a sudden I can't hear the birds, I can't see the sunshine, all is happening in my mind is, there's poison ivy, there's poison ivy, there's poison ivy, there's poison ivy. And what I do is I strip down to my underwear and I roll in the poison ivy. <laughs> now, is my insanity the fact that I'm allergic to poison ivy? Or is my insanity in my head that's telling me the poison ivy won't hurt you this time? So the reason I come to Overeaters Anonymous is not because of the allergy. The reason I come to Overeaters Anonymous is because I am powerless over food while sober. My real problem is my sobriety, and that's going to be slammed home in the next chapter. So what is my reality as the real compulsive overeater? Let's turn to page 24. And Bill puts it in the squiggly writing, which cost more money at the time. They didn't have a lot of money. So whenever there's squiggly writing, I really try to pay attention. It says, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable, at certain times, to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory and the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So what am I being told here? If I'm the compulsive overeater of the type described in this book, I have no choice, I have no willpower, and I have no memory. You know, if you go into a rehab, what's the first question they're probably going to ask you? What's your drug of choice, right? So if I was being honest with the intake person, I would say marijuana because I chose to smoke it and I chose not to smoke it. <laughs> Alcohol, I chose to drink it and I chose not to drink it. The pat my drug of no choice is food. My specific binge foods, because no matter how many times I have chosen not to do that, I will continue to have it over and over. And I have practically no, no willpower, and that's what I depended on for years. I personally got a master's degree in relapse. I can make some shit happen, people. You know what I'm saying? I got willpower in other areas of my life. 
So it says here we aren't able at certain times. And that's what confused me. Because, see, I remember that wedding in 1996 where I was able to eat like a lady. And I think I can do that again, even though the rest of the weddings in the 90s, I was out of control or not going because I was afraid to go there. So this is what happens for me. I think of it like Russian roulette. You have a gun, you got six chambers, and there's one bullet in it, right? And you're willing to pull that trigger because, you know, there's a five and six chance you're going to be okay. And that's why I'm doing it. I'm thinking this time I'll be able to get, get it back together. But what happens is my disease progresses. There's more and more bullets in the chamber. And what happens, I eventually have five out of six of those chambers are filled with bullets. But because I have no choice, what am I doing? I am pulling the, the trigger over and over and over. And that's why I would get confused even in Overeaters Anonymous. When I would come back from a relapse, and I would say, they, I say, they would say what happened, I would tell them, oh, Kim, you're not going to enough meetings. So I'd go to more meetings, and at certain times the meeting would work, and at certain times it didn't. And I would relapse again, and then someone would say to me, well, Kim, why don't you make more, you need to make more phone calls. Oh, okay. And sometimes a phone call would work, and at certain times it didn't. And I had to get to the place where I knew that there was no human aid that was going to save me. And that just not just meant in beforehand, because my, my answer was always a guy. If I could get that guy, I wouldn't want to eat again. But in Overeaters Anonymous, I had to get that. Meeting makers don't make it. Meeting makers make a lot of meetings. <laughs> meetings don't treat compulsive overeating. Hopefully, a healthy meeting, and I'm not just talking about OA, I'm talking about AA and NA and GA. It's the same story. Hopefully, a healthy meeting will expose you to the treatment, which is the 12 steps, and you will get the benefit of that treatment if you do the 12 steps. So it's saying here, I'm without defense against the first drink. I had to get that. I thought the problem was the third donut. Teach me how not to have the third donut. If I can have two donuts, I'm going to be okay. I am without defense against that first drink because then it's a biological function. What I realize now is in many times in Overeaters Anonymous, it was like I had an allergic reaction to strawberries and I would break out in a rash. And what I tried to do was eat the strawberry, and try not to break out in the rash. <laughs> Once it's in my body, it's a biological function. There is nothing that I'm going to be able to do about it. Now, maybe sometimes I'm not going to break out in the rash five minutes later or ten minutes later. And a lot of times I had to look. Maybe it was 24. Really? I feel like I'm screaming. Um, maybe I'll stand up. So maybe it's, it's 24 hours or 48 hours later that I'm having this reaction. But I can't control it. That's why I need a spiritual solution. So let's go to page 25, and they're going to finally tell us. You know, this is a chapter, there's a solution. It took us, what, fricks and six, six pages to get to the solution here. But that first Paul paragraph, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which this process requires for a successful consummation. First of all, I thought I had to like it. I don't know about you, but I came into OA and I told you, well, well let me get comfortable in the rooms first. Let me get abstinent for a little while, and then I'll do the steps. If I can do that, then I don't need to come to OA. You don't need to like it. Most of them didn't like it. You get the benefit from doing it, not whether you like it or not. And what is it? The self it says the self-searching, which to me is step four. The leveling of our pride, which is steps five through seven. 
and the confession of shortcomings, which is step eight through nine. So it's the action steps of four through nine that are going to get us that, that, that spiritual change. I don't know how many of you did the OA waltz. You know, steps one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, which was always followed by one, two, three, relapse, one, two, three, relapse, because I don't do anything. This workshop, what I'm hoping is that it's going to disturb you enough to do the rest of the steps, because listening to this workshop and even internalizing this workshop is not going to create the psychic change that Maria talked about. So it says that this process requires for its successful consummation. Now, we often hear that you know, there's no requirements in Overeaters Anonymous. And you know what? There aren't. You are, you are welcome to, as I did for decades, to sit in these rooms and continue to suffer. You can continue to stay in the food. You can continue to relapse. But if you want successful consummation, if you want to live your life contently abstinent, there's going to be some requirements. So then if we drop down, um, well, actually, what, what brings us to that point? It says, but we, we saw that it really worked in others and had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life where we've been living it. So those are the two things that are going to convince me. Number one, life is going to have to be impossible. As long as I'm getting away with stuff, as long as I figure I can get some, some time together and I'm going to be okay, I'm not going to be willing to do these work. I personally went to see Joe and Charlie, the Joe and Charlie in 96. And I remember walking out of there, you know, thinking, oh, thank God I'm not an alcoholic. All I have to do is go to meetings. <laughs> You know, it's not, it's, you can hear the perfect message, but if your ears and your heart and your, and your eyes aren't open, you're not, you're not going to internalize it. And the other things that we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, that was so important to me. I needed to see someone who understood what it meant to suffer from compulsive overeating, but even more importantly, could witness to me that they were no longer suffering from compulsive overeating. That's the magic of a healthy meeting. You know, a meeting where everybody's in the food, I mean, if, I, if, if that was all I needed, honestly, I could have recovered before OA. I was in many all-you-can-eat buffets talking to my friends about why I was so miserably a compulsive overeater. I needed to be around people in whom the problem had been solved. I had to seek out people. And for me personally, this is just my experience, when I started doing this work seven years ago, unfortunately, there weren't a lot of healthy OA meetings. And I had to go to AA. And I had to go there because I needed to see people who understood what these clear-cut directions were. So let's go down um, to the next paragraph, because this was what I had to internalize as my truth. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. Now, I had been in OA for 17 years. I had been your intergroup chair. I had six years of back-to-back abstinence at one point. But what I had to realize, if I was in the middle of a five-year relapse after 17 years in OA, and I had a lot of deep spiritual experiences. Believe me, coming in this room and finding out I had a disease was a deep spiritual experience. Hanging around people that understood the way I ate was a deep spiritual experience. But I had to fully concede that what I was doing wasn't effective. I had to be willing to, to be teachable in another way because what I was doing wasn't working. And that last part of the paragraph made me understand it. It says, which has revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellow, and towards God's universe. You know, I wrote the uh, definition of revolution in my book because I love it. It says, a usually violent attempt by many people to end the rule of one government and start a new one. You know, I always looked for the gentle sponsor. You know, I, I wanted to do 
maybe the odd steps, maybe maybe the even steps. You know, I, I wanted, I, I didn't want, I, I had to recognize how violent my disease was, and I was going to need a radical solution to that disease. And I also had to recognize for myself again that it wasn't, I wasn't doing it in all my affairs towards life, towards my fellow, and towards God's universe. I would go to a meeting where you guys loved me, and for that one hour a day, I would accept I was a compulsive overeater, and I would leave that room, and I would wreak havoc throughout the world. I would wreak havoc in my family and in my office. Thank you. So that was what I had to internalize, that I, had, I wanted an effective experience now. So I was going to have to shut up and, and be, new, be a newcomer again after 17 years. And then this last paragraph I'm going to go over, that last paragraph on page 25, this, this was some hard truths I needed to hear too. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, so I had to admit, you know, I, we often hear, you know, I'm a critical level compulsive overeater, you know, I'm, an, you know, I'm a morbidly obese, I'm bulimic, I'm anorexic, I'm bulimic, but I exercise bulimic, I'm a bulimic, but I have, a, I, you know, I use laxatives. We separate ourselves in that way. If we have the allergy body obsession of the mind, that's, that's what it is. I have to understand I'm seriously alcoholic. And that was for me personally one of the reasons AA was helpful, because I believe those people had a disease. And maybe, maybe this food thing isn't a big deal. But when I walked into those rooms and I was no different than the alcoholic, I knew that I had a problem. Um, so it says, life was becoming impossible. I couldn't get drunk. I couldn't get sober. I couldn't live with the food. I couldn't live without the food. And I passed into the region from which there was no return through human aid. I don't know about you guys, but I, I sponsor shopped a lot. I had, I had worn out every sponsor in the South Jersey area at this point. You know, human aid couldn't do it anymore. So I was down to two alternatives. One was to go on the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. See, for many years in OA, I thought the intolerable situation was being in the food. And if that's true, then abstinence is the answer. But see, what happens to a compulsive overeater of my type is when the food goes down, that's when the real problems begin. Because what happens for me is life gets loud. And I don't know how to shut it up. And the only way I've been able to shut it up is to eat the food. So my problem is I don't know how to be sober. I don't know how to face life without this crutch. I don't have any coping skills. Sobriety is my real issue. So when I am sober, when I am abstinent, and I'm in that intolerable situation. I'm restless. I'm irritable. I'm discontent. I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. I have two alternatives. One is to go on to the bitter end, which means I'm going to pick up the food again. And the other is to go for spiritual help, which scares the crap out of me because I don't know what the heck that means. But when I'm down to those two alternatives, it doesn't mean I have a choice. I can't sit still at this point. I'm going one way or the other. One way or the other. And that's where real spiritual growth can start. Um, so I think I'm, I'm at 23 minutes, but I think I'm going to stop there. So thank you.